The Mayday Murders is copyright 2005 by Scott Wittenberg. To learn more about this and other novels by the author, please visit scottwittenberg.com. Epilogue A week later, Sam was sitting at his desk when the telephone rang. He finished the sentence he was typing, located the phone underneath the pile of wadded-up papers, and picked up the receiver. Hello? Have I caught you at a bad time? Ann asked. No, not at all. How you doing? Okay, she replied, not sounding very convincing. You're lying, Sam said. What's wrong? There was a moment of silence before Ann replied. That kid of ours is going to put me into an early grave. What did she do now? It's what she didn't do. I reminded her three times to clean up her room before she left to go out with Amanda. So I go to the grocery store and come back, and what do I find? Her room hasn't been touched. What in the world is wrong with her, Sam? Why won't she ever mind me? Sam breathed a silent sigh of relief. He was afraid that it was going to be a little more serious than this. Well, Anne, do you want to know my honest opinion? Yes, please. She needs to be disciplined a lot more convincingly. You are way too easy on her. But... Let me finish before you get all defensive, okay? Although I think you're being too easy on her, there's such a thing as being too hard on her, and that could be even worse. My advice is to do as you've been doing, but with a little more edge behind it. She's a good kid, Anne, and she's got a good mom who loves her. She'll be okay. She's got a good dad, too. True. She misses her dad, and I miss him, too. That could be fixed, you know, Sam challenged. Anne sighed. I know, Sam, and don't think I haven't been giving that a lot of thought lately. There was an uncomfortable pause, and Sam resumed typing. Why are you working at home on a Saturday afternoon? Anne asked, breaking the silence. I'm not working, exactly. I can hear your typewriter. Wait a minute. What are you doing using the typewriter? Sam, are you actually working on your manuscript? Well, not exactly. I'm working on a new one. Sam, that's wonderful. What are you writing about? A deranged murderer. You mean Stanley, don't you? Sort of. At first I thought I was going to do a true crime thing and writing a documentary of what happened, but I changed my mind. I mean, I spend day in and day out writing about real things in the real world, and I want to do something different for a change, something that I'll enjoy doing. So I decided to make it a novel instead, based loosely on Stanley Jenkins. I figured who in the hell would believe the truth anyway? It's rather ironic in a sense. I think that's great, Sam. And I'll be frank. I don't think I'd want you to write about it. I was such a fool, Sam. I can't believe I let myself get sucked in by him. Sam stopped typing. Don't be too hard on yourself, Anne. Stanley Jenkins was a master manipulator, a genius in his own demented way, when you really think about it. He was cold and calculating, and knew how to play on people's fears and emotions. Had it down to an art, in fact. Just be thankful that you're still around to talk about it. Did he confess to killing Cindy Fuller, too? Oh, yeah. He was more than obliging to the police. He confessed everything. He gave Roger the whole lowdown, right down to the very last detail, to all three murders. Roger said that Stanley was quite proud of his accomplishments. That man is one sick son of a bitch, that's for sure. I still can't get over how stupid I was, Anne said. If only I'd driven by his alleged home in Dublin, or at least checked to see if he was really a member of the neighborhood church. Then I would have known that something was wrong, and Sam cut her off. Anne, dear, listen to me. Don't blame yourself for what you could have done. 
Remember that, first of all, you had no reason to suspect Jerry Rankin of anything. He was just some good-looking guy who happened to meet you at the supermarket, and then one thing led to another until you eventually went out with him. Stanley knew that the church story and his falsified residence in Dublin was a gamble, but he was banking on the hunch that you wouldn't check up on him in the time it would take him to accomplish what he'd set out to do. Anne sighed. I guess you're right. But how come I never once noticed that he'd been in this house, or that he'd bugged the phones? How in the hell could he get away with all that, and neither Amy nor I notice anything? Sam lit up a cigarette and replied, The guy was a fucking master sleuth, that's all I can say. Roger learned that Stanley had always been a spy freak, read every secret agent book he could get his hands on when he was a kid, used to read them late at night while his parents were asleep. His parents are yet another story altogether, by the way. It's little wonder why Stanley ended up being so psychotic and fucked up. Anyway, James Bond was his hero, and by the time Stanley was 13 or so, he'd become obsessed with Agent 007 and started fantasizing about being a spy. He used to sneak out of his house at night and go peep-tomming all over town. Got pretty good at it, apparently. He never once got caught. Had he gotten caught, his mother probably would have murdered him. He spent a great deal of time casing you out back then, by the way. I know, he told me. Anyway, he told Roger that this Larry Underwood kid peeping at Amy just about blew his cover. Apparently, Stanley had been in the back of the house one night screwing around with the telephone wires when he heard the Underwood kid climbing over the fence. Stanley ran around the side of the house just in time and hid in the bushes. Then he watched the kid as he proceeded to peep into the bathroom window, presumably at Amy as she showered. Stanley realized that the boy could eventually pose a problem for his own agenda, but he wasn't quite sure how to deal with him. He couldn't bust the kid, not then anyway, so Stanley started keeping a keen eye on the Underwood kid as he spied on Amy over the next couple of weeks, trying to determine his routine. Then, once Rankin had accidentally met you and become a legitimate presence in your life, he struck. He had a hunch that Larry Underwood would come around the night of Amy's homecoming dance, so when he did, Stanley was ready for him. Roger said that Stanley had wanted to, quote, murder the fucking amateur, but opted instead to merely rough the boy up a bit. This is incredible, Anne shuddered, imagining two different deranged nutcases invading her property. Scary, isn't it? The Underwood kid may become another Stanley Jenkins some day, for all we know. I'd be sure to tell Amy to keep a very close eye on that one. God, Sam, what's this world coming to? I don't know, babe. I'm starting to think that the parents are to blame for a lot of the insanity that goes on anymore. Like I was saying before, parents can push their kids too far, and you end up with a case like Stanley Jenkins. His parents, particularly his mother, apparently never gave him any breathing room. They demanded too much of him, and wouldn't let him have any kind of normal social life. Stanley retaliated, became a total sociopath, lost in his own little world of perverse espionage, and the older he got, the more dangerous he became. What's to become of him, you think? Anne asked. Roger thinks he'll plead insanity, probably spend the rest of his life in an institution. He's got to face charges in New York and Colorado, too, keep in mind. They'll put him away for good, one way or another, you can rest assured. No chance of the death penalty? Nope, I don't think so. The guy's a nut, and they won't hang a nut. God help us if he escapes. Tell me about it. One thing's really been bothering me, Anne said. I can't figure out why Marcia never told me about her and Sarah's little scheme at the basketball game. I remember telling her about Stanley asking me out at the time, and she just chuckled and never said any more about it. That wasn't like her, to keep something from me like that. Sam heaved a sigh. 
Do you suppose that Sarah Hunt may have had something to do with that? I mean, you and Sarah never got along, and Marcia was hanging out with Sarah around that time. Maybe Marcia felt a little ashamed at herself having been a part of the scheme and was simply too embarrassed to fess up to it. You may be right, come to think of it. I can see Marcia reacting that way. At any rate, it was a deadly mistake on her part, in retrospect, Sam added grimly. I know. I have a confession to make, Sam announced. I wasn't going to tell you this, but I've just decided to tell you after all. It might make you feel a little better. What is it? Anne asked suspiciously. You weren't the only one suckered by Stanley Jenkins. I was, too. What do you mean? The night that Shelley Hatcher came out to see me was the first time I'd seen her since our divorce. It was really late at night, about 2 a.m., and I wondered at the time why in the hell she'd come out of the clear blue like that. When I asked her about it, she told me she wanted me to see her photo portfolio so I could give her my assessment of it. It had been pouring rain to beat the band that night, and she had traveled all the way from Kentucky just to show me her fucking portfolio? Well, I was skeptical, to say the least. Anyway, I looked it over. It was okay, but not that great. And I started thinking that she had really come over to get some romantic thing going. Well, one thing led to another, and we ended up sleeping together that night. Of course, I figured that my hunch was right. Why are you telling me this, Sam? Anne interrupted, angry and hurt. Hold on, sweetie. There's more. I don't want to hear it. Yes, you do. Hear me out, okay? I promise you that you'll want to hear this. Okay, if you insist. It turns out that Shelley had truly come to show me her portfolio. Earlier that day, Shelley had been at a McDonald's having lunch. She works at a jewelry store in Ashland. And she just so happened to have taken her portfolio with her. A man sitting at her table saw her looking through her pictures and asked if he could take a look at them. Shelley said sure, so the guy checked out her photos. When he was through, he tore it they were excellent, adding that he, of course, wasn't a photo critic by any stretch of the imagination. He then asked Shelley if she had shown her portfolio to someone in the business recently, to get an honest professional opinion. She mentioned that the only pro she could think of offhand was her old mentor at the newspaper she used to work at, which, of course, happens to be yours truly. The stranger insisted that she should by all means look me up and show me her work as soon as possible, that there was a good chance that I might be able to line her up with some work. This got her wheels turning, and the Steve was planned for her to pay me a visit. Now, would you like to take a stab at who this stranger was? Stanley? Anne replied, incredulous. Right, it was our boy. But why? Don't you get it? Stanley wanted to assure his success with you, so he was determined to do anything he could to achieve that goal. He knew that if he could somehow get Shelley and me back together, even if it was only for a chat, that there was a slim chance that it would somehow get back to you. That would, of course, cause more dissension between us, which we know it did, and as a result, would sort of help clear the way for him to get to you to fall for him that much easier. Jesus, Anne cried. He was certainly methodical. How did you find all this out? Shelley called me last week and told me the whole story after she had seen Stanley's photo in the paper. She feels horrible about it, because she now realizes what she'd done. But there's no way that she, or any of us, could have ever guessed that Jerry Rankin was, in fact, actually Stanley Jenkins. Roger and everybody else involved in this case have all but agreed that Stanley might never have been caught if it hadn't been for that Polaroid Amy sent me. As a matter of fact, we can thank our daughter for solving this case. Our daughter and her father, Anne corrected. Well, I guess you could say that. A short pause, then Anne said, Sam? Yeah, babe. Do you really think it's over between you and Shelley Hatcher? I mean, really over? Definitely. You sure? Sure, I'm sure. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, 
Sam emphasized, wondering what this line of questioning was leading up to. Are your parents still flying up for Thanksgiving? Yep, they'll be here on the 22nd. Why? I was just thinking, why don't we all have Thanksgiving together, like a family, just like we did last year? Are you serious? Yes, I'm serious. I don't want to be alone anymore, Sam. I miss you, and I miss the three of us being a family. Amy does, too. And the mere thought of going through the holidays without you is unbearable. In fact, I don't think I could do it. Does this mean... Yes, Sam. I'm ready to come home. God, am I ready. Sam nearly leaped out of his chair. You don't know how happy I am to hear that, honey. It's been a living hell not having you and Amy around. I miss you two so much, I... Let me say it first, Anne interjected. I love you, Sam Middleton. Always have, always will. For better or for worse. I love you. I love you too, honey, Sam said, as a thought suddenly came to mind. But what about Amy in school? I've already spoken to Amy and the school's principal about it. She'll have to finish this semester, and then she can transfer her credits to Smithtown High. Amy's all for it, and can't wait to see her old friends again. That's great. When does this semester end? Christmas break, December 20th, I believe. Think we can wait until then? We'll have to, unfortunately. But we've always got the weekends in the meantime. I guess that'll have to do. Do you have a stove in that bungalow of yours, Sam? For a turkey? Uh, yeah. It's not too big, but it should be able to accommodate a fair-sized bird. That's good, Anne said, a trace of disappointment in her voice. Sam knew what was eating her. The reality of the three of them living in this tiny house in the boondocks. He already had an answer for that. By the way, I forgot to tell you, he said. I was at the bank a few days ago, and I ran to Paul Malone. Seems he's getting transferred to Columbus at the beginning of the year. You're kidding, Anne cried. So he's moving his family up here? Yep. And the house? Putting it up for sale next week. Oh, God, Sam, I don't believe it. Is there any way that we could get our old house back? Sam finished the sentence for her. That shouldn't be a problem, if that's what you want to do. Oh, Sam, yes, let's do it. Consider it done. Wait until Amy hears this. She's almost missed that house as much as I have. She bitches about this place all the time. God, Sam, you're wonderful. I love you so much. That goes for me, too. And tell that kid of mine the same, okay? I will. I better go now. I think I'll take a walk and try to come back to Earth. I'm so excited now. I'm almost sick. I know what you mean. I'll call you tomorrow, honey. We've got a lot of planning to do. Okay. Love you, dear. Love you, too. Sam was grinning ear to ear as he hung up the phone. He breathed a deep sigh, slid a fresh sheet of paper into the carrier, and hit the keys with a flourish. The little town of Foxburg, Ohio, was in shock the day the police discovered the body of one of its most beloved citizens. Hi, this is Scott. I want to thank you for listening to the Mayday Murders, and I hope you enjoyed it. Your feedback is very much appreciated, so please take a moment to let me know your thoughts about this podcast by posting them either here or at www.scottwittenberg.com. I'd also like to invite you to check out my newest novel, See Tom Run, now available as a free podcast on iTunes and other podcast sites. Thanks for your support. See Tom Run, a free podcast of the novel by Scott Wittenberg, narrated by the author. For more information on this and other novels by the author, please visit scottwittenberg.com.